This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. About two months ago, I told you a story, uh, if you were here, about a box. It was a box that I mailed from Aurora to Papua New Guinea. It cost $189. It was supposed to go to my son and his family in Papua New Guinea for all the Christmas presents for my son and his wife and my two grandkids. The post office lost it, and then I lost it because they lost it, and it was kind of an ugly scene. And many of you are kind enough to ask about that box and what happened to the box. Well, I have an update about the box. The box reemerged somehow, and it made it all the way to Mount Hagen, Papua New Guinea after three months. Well, it's not, it's there. It just arrived two days ago. Yeah, that's amazing. So, um, so it, 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 it emerged after I looked at the tracking. It sat at O'Hare Airport for 51 days and didn't budge. And then all of a sudden it started moving. Now, I remembered somewhere in this sort of the multiple visits I went to the post office to angrily demand them to track down this box, there was this woman I'll call Gladys. And she was this very nice lady, and she said to me, she said, look, I really think it's out there. I bet it's at O'Hare right now. And I bet it's waiting there, and you just got to be patient, and you just got to trust that it's going to get there. You need to trust me. And I rolled my eyes and said, yeah, right. I've heard this before. You're just giving me the runaround. Well, here's the moral to this story. Trust Gladys. <laughs> it's the Gladys principle. It's working out. But you're impatient. Now, I'm going to be bold to say, based on Jesus, who used a woman in the Gospel of Luke as a a picture of God's loving search for us in Luke chapter 15. I'm going to say, God's a lot like Gladys. It's like, I got this under control. It's moving. Things are moving. It's not going to be according to your timetable. It might not even be the box you thought you wanted. But I have good plans and purposes for you and for my world and for all of creation. The kingdom has come. And I give you the gift of the kingdom. Here's our problem, though. The things that, a lot of things that really matter in life, they take time. They're really slow. And we hate to wait. We don't like to be told to be patient, especially in our culture. It's an offense to us. Sometimes we wait for things that are really inconvenient, like you're waiting in the grocery line, you're waiting uh, at a stoplight, you're waiting to get your luggage at a carousel, you're waiting five minutes to get your $6 latte at Starbucks, you know. But sometimes waiting is really agonizing. And I think we've all felt that. You're waiting for the grief to heal. You're waiting for the hurt to go away. You're waiting for the marriage to get on track. You're waiting for someone special to walk into your life and to love you. You're waiting to feel the presence of God again. You're waiting for COVID to end. As we increasingly have long lifespans, there are people that are waiting, agonizingly waiting to die. My friends in Nigeria are waiting for the violence to end, for the corruption to end in their country. And these friends in the global south, these often much poorer believers in Jesus, they have a profound waiting for heaven 
It's real to them. They think about it. They wait for it. Waiting is hard and it hurts. And our Heavenly Father knows this, so he's given us some help. He's given us two people in our gospel reading who are mentors of waiting. They're our guides. They're our exemplars. As Luke often does throughout the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, he has one man who's an example, and he has one woman who's an example. Read through the Gospel of Luke and Acts. He does that. He puts them back to back. It's very intentional on his part. And these, these, these little people named Simeon and Anna, they're going to teach us so much about how to wait. They're like keepers of a fire. When everybody else has walked away and things have grown cold and dark, they keep the fire of expectancy, of a holy, joyful, hopeful expectancy burning in their hearts. And not only in their hearts, but for the people of God. So turn with me in your Bibles to, um, I think it's page 857, I think. But it's Luke chapter 2, verse 22, and we're going to start there. And let me just say, first of all, Simeon and Anna, these two mentors of waiting, the thing to notice about first is that they're not powerful people. They're not privileged people. They're not famous people. They're not rich people. They are little people, powerless people, ordinary people, hidden people. But what they do is they take small steps of obedience even in the midst of profound and painful waiting. So this whole story is, is framed, if you frame it up, on one side it begins in verse 22, and just notice some of the phrases there. It says, they brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to, pre to present him to the Lord as it is written in the law of the Lord. And then verse 24, according to what is written, what is said in the law of the Lord, and then if you look at the other frame of this literary unit in the Gospel of Luke, verse 39, it says, when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord. They are little people who take the next step of obedience right in front of them. That's what makes, part of what makes them really special. And we're going to see that through these little people, God is lifting up the lowly. Did you hear Psalm 113? Go back and read it. Our God is high and exalted. But he, he is so, what makes him really great is that he lifts up the lowly. He lifts up the poor. He lifts up the barren. That is a great thing. And that's what he's doing with Simeon and Anna right before our eyes. So let's just do something really simple with this text. So... The second greatest African-American preacher of the last um, century was a guy many of us have never heard of, but his, his name is Dr. Gardner Taylor. Look him up. He's called the Prince of Preachers. And he had a very simple philosophy of preaching. Preaching was, he said, let's just walk through the neighborhood of the biblical text. Let's just walk through it and see what's there and get to know the people that live there. So I want to I take Dr. Taylor's advice and walk through the neighborhood of this text, walk with Simeon, walk with Anna, and see what they have to teach us. So verse 25, we meet a man named Simeon, and it starts with, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And I want to ask the question, why him? There's lots of men in Jerusalem at this time. What's so special about him that makes him stand out? Well, Luke tells us. 
This man was righteous and devout. The word devout is a very special word in the original language. It means somebody that knows how to hold on to what is good, holds on to what is valuable. You know, we live with so many distractions, so many things that seem important, that seem urgent, that seem crucial. It's just constantly in our face. But sometimes we don't know what's really good, what's really worth waiting for, and what's not worth waiting for. Simeon is a man that knows what's good. He knows what is good in the eyes of God, and he knows that certain things that God has for us are worth waiting for, and certain things are not worth waiting for. So he has spent his life, he spent a long life of dwelling in the presence of the Lord, gazing on the beauty of the Lord, meditating on the word of the Lord, and he knows what is good. And what is he waiting for? Well, it tells us at the end of verse 25, he's waiting for the consolation of Israel. That is such a great phrase. The consolation of Israel. So all throughout the prophets in the Old Testament, there are these stirring words of God coming to his people and giving these incredible words of consolation. Consolation that is coming in a person, that is coming in Messiah. Let me give you an example. So Isaiah chapter 40 is one of these great words of consolation. This actually may be the word that, the consolation that Luke is referring to. Isaiah chapter 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So you sin big time, but my forgiveness is greater than your sin. It's at the heart of the gospel. It's at the heart of the message of Jesus for us, that our God has come to forgive our sins. It's a word of consolation that Messiah is coming, the king, the healer, the redeemer. You know, we are never too old, too sophisticated, too smart, too successful, too together to get beyond the need for consolation from God, from saying, I need it. I need to be consoled. I need to be experience consolation with some of the things I'm going through. There's this really powerful scene in a, in a French movie, which I have not watched, but I read a review of it in the New York Times Magazine, the French actress Juliette Binoche. And she has, her character has done some really self-destructive things, some really, really bad things. And she's meeting with her therapist in the scene, and the therapist is trying to help her, and the therapist says, you know, it's really hard to face the prospect of our own death. And this character says, I'm okay with dying. I'm just not okay with being abandoned. And then tears start streaming down her face. And then she adds, we are never too old to be soothed, never too old to be taken care of. We're never too old, we're never too smart to be waiting for the consolation of God. And notice how Simeon waits. He waits with this profound openness, what I'm calling holy expectancy. So it's not, mm, I'm waiting, I'm waiting, I gotta hold on, 
I gotta white knuckle it, I gotta make it. He's waiting like this. Come, Holy Spirit, come. So verse 25, it says, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Verse 26 says it was revealed to him by the Holy Spirit. Verse 27, he came to the temple in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is all over this guy. And he's wide open. He is saying with his life, Lord, I don't have this. As I don't got this. I need you. I need you, Lord. Over the last 10 years, I've been doing a lot of reading of what are called the new atheists, people like Richard Dawkins, Christ the late Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris, etc. And one of the themes that I get over and over again from them is it is a courageous and honest thing to face the fact that there is no God and there is no divine consolation coming up there, out there, or wherever. There is just, as Richard Dawkins likes to say, blind, pitiless indifference in the universe. And I would, as I'm thinking about that, I think, you know, that is one perspective. But you could equally flip that on its head and you could say, wait a minute, maybe it's a courageous, honest thing to admit that I need consolation and I can get it, receive it, open my life to it from the very source of consolation. That I'm not too proud, I'm not too together to go to the living God, the one who says comfort, oh comfort my people, the one who speaks tenderly to us, I can receive it from him. That is a courage, courageous and honest thing. Well, more to say about Simeon, but let me move to Anna. So we find her in verse 37, actually verse 36. What do we know about her? Well, we know she's a prophetess. She's teaching the word of God. In verse 36, we also find that she's advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from whom she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. So we also know we know four things about her. She's old, really old. She's single, and she's been single for a long time. She's most likely childless, and she's most likely poor. Because widows were almost always poor. And there was no safety net underneath them. So all the things that our society would say, how sad, how tragic. What a sad life. What a tragic woman. Don't you feel sorry for her? And God says in this passage, you could not be more wrong about Anna and her life. This is a woman who is full of life. This is a wo woman who is full of spiritual fruitfulness. Sometimes what psychologists call generativity. She's full of life. She generates life. She is like Simeon has become a person of blessing. You notice how both Simeon and Anna in this passage they bless, they pour out blessing 
to their community. They've been through dark nights of waiting. They've stayed faithful. They've kept the fire going. And it has blessed the community around them. This woman is full of joy. She did not depart from the temple. The temple is a place for rich community. It's a place where the Jewish people would gather for worship. But I also imagine, I mean, I could be wrong about this, but it's just hard not to imagine. It's also a social hub. It's a place for community. It's a place for friendship. She has a ministry. She's a prophetess. She's teaching the word of God to the people of God. She prays her troubles. And so she, her life is hard, but it's not empty. She aches, but she's not abandoned. Her life is full of the presence of God. And what is she waiting for? Well, remember, remember Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel. She's waiting for something. It's very similar, but it's a little different, a little different nuance. Look at verse 38. She is, or verse, uh, I'm sorry, verse 34. She's, no, it is verse 38. She's waiting for the redemption of Israel. What is that? Well, I would like to say, I would like to argue maybe that the Jewish people are the ones who practically gave the world the idea of redemption. Praise God for the Jews. If you look historically, they were the ones, at the very least you could say, they were the ones that unleashed it into the world. Our Jewish friends. That's what we find in the Old Testament. What is redemption? I think the person that has the best definition of redemption I've ever heard is J.R.R. Tolkien. And he had this word called eucatastrophe that he made up. And you know the word catastrophe. Catastrophe is the point in the story where the plot just takes a nosedive. And everything looks grim. And everything looks like it's going to be lost. And defeat looks certain. And, and the, the night is just pitch black. And there doesn't seem to be any hope towards deliverance. But then, that's a catastrophe, but then there's this eucatastrophe, which he said is this turn towards joy that you don't engineer, you don't see coming, you don't know where it's going to come from, but it comes. And for us as believers, it's the promises of God if we find in scriptures. And at that very lowest point, there's this turn towards joy. It's the story, the plot story that we love in every novel and most novels and films and famous sports comebacks that we love. It's the story of Martin Luther King Jr. and the civil rights movement. It's the story of the Exodus. It's the story of the whole Bible. And it's, in particular, the story of Jesus, the story of his birth and life and death and resurrection. And Christmas Eve, we looked at this great passage in Philippians 2 where St. Paul says that Christ came, Christ who was in the very form of God, who existed as God, descended in his incarnation and was made like us, was made a human being, but not just made a human being, he was made like a, a servant. He was made like the lowest of the low. And then he went even lower than that. He became a criminal condemned on the cross. You can't get any lower than that. And then this eucatastrophe, it takes a sudden turns towards joy in the resurrection and his ascension and in Pentecost, what we celebrate every year in the church year. That is the redemption. That's the redemption, the full redemption of Jerusalem that we are waiting for. 
was thinking about how we enter, we're entering 2022. And for many people in our culture today, it seems like such a fearful time. Like things are unraveling. And you read the media on the right and the media on the left, and it seems like there's a lot of people working really hard, pushing us to places of fear and anxiety and anger. We're afraid of the economy. We're afraid of jobs. We're afraid of finances. We're afraid of the future of our country. We're afraid of democracy. We're afraid of this country or that country. And the message of this text is not, you got to hold on to Jesus, but the message of this passage is, let him hold on to you. What we say or will say soon in our liturgy, you remember Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. That's at the heart of the consolation of Israel. That's at the heart of the redemption of Jerusalem. One of my favorite verses is Romans chapter 4, verse 5, where it says that God is the one who justifies the ungodly. Think about that. What a startling phrase. Any religion can tell you God justifies the godly. God puts a stamp of approval on the godly, the, the good people. The people who have clawed, craw, crawled out of the pit by themselves. But God justifying the ungodly, Christ dying for sinners, if he can do that, then anything's possible. He can raise up the lowly as he's raising up Simeon and Anna before our eyes. So how do we wait? Well, let me leave you with, with two things. I don't know what you're waiting for, but I bet first, if you're waiting for something that really matters, it hurts. And if you're not in that right now, you can't relate to that, someday you will. And it might come sooner than you think. And it hurts. Did you hear that little promise that Simeon gave Mary in the midst of this blessing? He says, and a sword will pierce your heart also. Christ has come. The angels are singing. It's all glorious, glory. In excelsis Deo, it's all glorious. And yet, even so, a, pierce, a sword will pierce your soul. Christians are people who wait with groaning, the Apostle Paul says. Because one day this baby that Simeon's holding in his hands, one day this baby Jesus will wipe every tear, will heal our aches, will fulfill every promise. We will see it. We will touch it. He will say, behold, I make all things new. That day is breaking in right now. We celebrate that every Sunday around the Eucharist. But that day is not fully here yet. And so it still hurts. So if you're like me, sometimes you may be tempted to deep unbelief Cynicism, stoicism, I'm not going to be hurt again. I'm not going to believe again. I'm not going to open my heart again. I don't have a pastoral word of challenge for you. I just have two witnesses in this neighborhood of the text. Simeon and Anna. Old man, Papa Simeon, old mama, Anna. And it's not a coincidence that they're here in the sovereign purposes of God at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. In the beginning of our church year, this scripture comes to us, and they're here to help us, to encourage us, to speak to us, 
to heal our cynicism, to unravel the knot of our unbelief, and to say, through the grace of God, through the power of the Spirit, through the deep connection to Holy Mother Church, keep the fire of holy expectancy burning. Live with holy expectancy. So I just want to end just inviting Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus, come among us with these two humble witnesses you've given us, these people that speak with such power across the decades and centuries. Open our hearts, open our minds to live with holy expectancy once again with who you are, what you can do in us and through us and to breathe holy expectancy on this weary world. We pray this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.